We hear stories from scripture time and time again, and this one that we hear this morning is the gospel always on the Sunday right after Easter. And so for as long as you've been coming to church, the Sunday after Easter, you've been hearing this gospel. I'll let you do the math. But you might notice we can be inclined to harden these stories within us. Having heard them before, we say, oh yeah, I've heard that one. And we let it wash over us in a way that might be a little less engaging than something maybe we've heard for the first time. St. Ignatius of Loyola, some 600 plus years ago, taught people how to engage scripture in a way that could reveal things new again and again. He suggested that people enter into the story. Now, this is something that's easier to do with scripture that we know well than that which we don't know well. So I'd like to invite us to do this this morning with this piece of gospel, which we've heard every single time it's the Sunday after Easter. Some people find it helpful to close their eyes while they consider this. Imagine that story. The disciples in that upper room. The doors were locked because the situation was so confusing. It provided a level of safety. And in their midst appears Jesus, resurrected. They can hardly believe their eyes. Jesus speaks to them, says, peace be with you. They know it's him. They see his body with the marks of his suffering. And then he's gone. They turn to one another. What do they say? Perhaps they explain to one another what they saw. Did you see it too? Did you hear those words? Unbelievable! Jesus was here in our midst. Unbelievable! He breathed on us. He gave us the power to forgive sins or to retain them. I can't believe he was here. And they look around and notice Thomas isn't there. They'd forgotten. Where might he have been? Would he come back in a couple minutes? Or was his departure unanticipated and indefinite? The days go on. They recount to one another their disbelief at what they definitely believe. And Thomas comes back. How do they explain to him what they saw? Imagine how you would if you wanted to tell somebody something incredibly important. Thomas, Jesus was here. His resurrected self, we saw him in the flesh, we touched him. You wouldn't believe it, but it's true. Ask any one of us, we'll tell you the same. It's unbelievable, but it's true. 
Thomas says, I don't believe it. Unless I touch him myself, I don't believe it. What's your emotional reaction to Thomas? Have you ever believed something so deeply within yourself and longed to explain it to someone else and they disregard it? Thomas doesn't believe. He doesn't believe these people that he has known for several years, that he has followed Jesus with. They've been through hell together. And when they proclaim to him that they have seen the Lord, he says, I don't believe it. Unless I touch the marks myself, it remains untrue. This is what the gospel writer brings to our attention about the heartbreak of this story. That Thomas doesn't believe his fellow disciples, people that he's known. They thought they had a particular level of trust, of caring for one another, and here he dismisses them right outright. Not unless I touch it myself will I believe. Oh, really? The disciples had no reason to believe Jesus would come back and do it again. Crestfallen, they sojourn on to the next day. But that would hurt. That would hurt to have someone who you thought loved and trusted you not to trust and love you. When we reflect on this, we have a new opening into this scripture passage of how it is that truth is made known in relationship. Jesus comes to his disciples and makes himself known as the resurrected Lord. Now that they know it, they have to do something with it. They tell Thomas, surely he would be the easiest one to share this news with, and yet he doesn't believe Yet they can't deny the truth that they know within themselves. They saw it. They touched him with their very own hands. Truth is made known in relationship. You've heard that question about if a tree falls in the woods, does it make a sound? Well, kind of. When a tree falls in the woods, definitely sound waves are generated. That just happens. That's what happens. Sound waves are generated all the time. So yes, when the tree falls in the woods, sound waves are generated. But it only makes a sound when there's an interpreter of the waves. It's only when the ear receives those waves that a sound is acknowledged and identified. This is how truth works. Truth exists. It does exist, whether we acknowledge it or not. But it isn't made known until we're in relationship with it. Parker Palmer, in his little book, To Know As We Are Known, Education as a Spiritual Journey, takes on this very point, pointing out to us how truth is made known in relationship. So often we objectify truth, or if we're not happy with that, then we subjectify it. Both 
are incomplete. To objectify something is to say that it exists out there, independent of me, and yet I can shelve it. I don't have to do anything really with it, it's just there. It makes truth a thing, separate from my very self. That is incomplete, I would say. But to make it subjective is also an error. To say the truth resides in each of us, independent of one another, and your experience of it does not inform my own, also leads us to the same conclusion, that truth is subjective, independent. I'm not shaped by your experience of it, nor are you by mine. That is also incomplete. Parker Palmer brings this to our attention, and I want to share with you how beautifully he writes it, identifying that when we objectify or subjectify truth, we hold it at arm's length, refusing to be shaped by its reality. He reminds us, though, to educate toward truth does not mean turning away from the facts, from the theories, and from the objective realities. If we devote ourselves to truth, the facts will not necessarily change. What will change is our relation to the facts or to the world that the facts make known. Truth requires the knower to become interdependent with the known. Both parties have their own integrity and otherness, and one party cannot be collapsed into the other. But truth demands acknowledgement of and response to the fact that the knower and the known are implicated in each other's lives. That's the zinger of the story, I feel like. That one line, truth demands acknowledgement of and response to the fact that the knower and the known are implicated in each other's lives. This is what happens when Jesus shows up in that locked upper room as the resurrected one. Making himself known to the disciples, they are implicated in each other's lives. Those disciples are changed forever. They cannot deny what happened there. They cannot deny it. It has changed them. And Jesus says, I am changed too in relationship to you. For you are the ones to take me out into the world. See, I am alive. He breathes on them. He tells them, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. You are the ones to take me out into the world. My resurrected self cannot be fully known unless people take it out into the world. Please, it's you. You're the ones. Their lives are changed forever. They become the hands and feet of the resurrected Christ in the world. They can't deny it. And Jesus trusts himself into their care. They're implicated in one another's lives. There's a demand of the acknowledgement of and a response to the fact that Jesus has been raised. We know this to be true as people understand or experience God, the one God, through religious institutions. They say, I see who you show him to be. I like or don't like that God. Wow, but we are implicated in the truth of Jesus' resurrection. We can't deny it. 
we have been entrusted with this good news to carry it into the world. I have confidence that as we demonstrate that, people will come to see who the resurrected Lord is. As we do things like build a garden for the hungry poor, they might consider, oh, God cares for the poor. We say, yes, indeed. As we consider what to do with people that are misplaced and um, threatened by things in their homeland, and consider how we respond to a refugee crisis, people might say, oh, so God cares about the misplaced, about those that are threatened. And we say, yes, God does. How is it that we show who God is in the world? If we forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If we retain them, they are retained. People see who God is by looking at us. Our lives are implicated in one another. And here's where Thomas has the mistake. He doesn't want to be a part of what is made known in relationship. He sets himself out of it. He denies the truth that is made known in trust. And the pain of that. You see, I believe as we come together in following Christ and loving Christ, we are always called into relationship with one another. Sometimes that's good and easy, and sometimes it's really hard. But that's what God wants of us, to grow in trust and love of one another so that God can make himself known in the world through our relationships with one another, through our relationship with him. Parker Palmer goes on to say, In truthful knowing, we neither infuse the world with our subjectivity, as happened in pre-modern knowing. Consider pre-modern knowing how the spider got its eight legs or why the sun comes up in the east. Stories were tell, told about how all this happens and works. Very subjective. So we, in truthful knowing, don't try to infuse the world with some type of subjectivity. Nor do we hold it at arm's length, manipulating it to suit our needs, as was the practice in the modern era. Consider the atomic bomb. You set that off, and what happens? We can't contain what truth does. So we cannot hold truth at arm's length, manipulating it to suit our needs. No, in truthful knowing, the knower becomes co-participant in a community of faithful relationships with other persons and creatures and things, with whatever our knowledge makes known. We find truth by pledging our troth, and knowing becomes a reunion of separated beings whose primary bond is not of logic, but of love. Knowing becomes a reunion of separated beings whose primary bond is not of logic, but of love. This is what we hear in the fourth gospel. It's known as the community of the beloved disciple. Jesus says to his disciples, as he leaves them in that upper room, my peace I give to you. He was in the upper room with them before, and he gave them a great commandment, a new commandment, love one another. This is where truth will be made known, in love. As you grow in trust of one another, you will discover the abundance of truth, that it is neither objective or subjective. It just is, and it transforms us. Thanks be to God for making us a resurrection people. Amen.